So it's the tent of Tavit, and I'm sitting here, housebound, wondering how best to use this day, because that's how I look, frankly, at life in general, but particularly at the Hebrew calendar, that every day is an invitation. There's something which is being offered to us that's in the world only today, and God forbid that we should miss it. In particular, a day like the tenth of Tevet, which has been marked in our calendar by our sages, and also in the Tanakh, as a day of fasting, it's worth it to take the time to reflect upon what exactly the day offers. First of all, don't despair if you find fasting a distraction. It's really meant to actually disrupt your daily routine. And the fact that it distracts you from doing all the other things you think you ought to do is a blessing. I want you to relate to your hunger today as a reminder. And even if you're not fasting, take a little time to step out of the routine and to think about what underlies life that gives it its meaning. Because there are three things that we're marking today. And we could... Look at the fact that there's three elements to this fast, simply as historical lumping, before we even get into them. It's important to know that the sages recognize that if we fasted and mourned for every single tragedy that happened in our history, that we would never do anything else. I mean, frankly, over the course of Jewish history, what day of the calendar has gone by without some tragedy worthy of our tears? So what we do, we lump the big ones together. There are five things we fast for on the 17th of Tammuz, five on Tisha B'Av, and three today on the 10th of Tevet. But I believe that there's got to be more to these three events than a random juxtaposition in history. The fact that their dates have a certain proximity in the month that causes them to be combined in one fast. Because, of course, fast days are a lot, are, are a lot more than just mourning. The Rambam... In the Mishnah Torah, in the Laws of Fasting, 5.1, if you want to look it up, says, There are certain days that all of Am Yisrael fasts because of the difficulties of the tragedies that happened to us in the past. And he says, Why? In order to arouse the heart and open up the paths of tshuva, of return, of repentance. Meaning this isn't about mourning for something in the past. It's about using a memory of the past in order to aspire us in the present to do something that will make the future better, right? That's what he says. It's a reminder of our evil conduct and that of our ancestors, which resembles our present conduct, and brought these calamities upon us, meaning things don't just happen. They happen for a reason. If we don't reflect upon why they happen, then God forbid we might be stuck in them again. And if we're going to access this power of historical memory, don't forget, those who've been listening for a while know that this is what the Jewish story is all about. I'm trying to tell a story of the past, which can motivate people in the present to build a future that we all want to hear. And I got to say, as long as they've got you here, I want your support. Put your money where your ears are, people. If you want to support a story that Christians and Jews, progressives and conservatives, religious and secular are all listening to. In a time when the world is so divided in its narratives, you want to contribute to crafting a story in which we can all find ourselves? Well, you can go right now to jewishstory.co. You'll see a little button in the upper right-hand corner. Click on it to make a little bit per podcast support. That's just an ad hoc plug. No, So I want to get back to my point. If we're going to access the power of historical memory on the 10th of Tevet, then we do need to know what unites these three events. What's their story? But of course, in order to answer that, we have to know what they are. So in Megillah Tanit, that oldest rabbinic document that we actually have in its entirety, it says on the 8th of Tevet, 
The Torah was translated into Greek in the days of King Ptolemy, bringing darkness to the world for three days. What occurred on the ninth was not recorded by our rabbis. On the tenth of David, the king of Babylon laid his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it. So let's begin at the beginning. On the eighth of David, it says that the Torah was translated to Greek in the days of King Ptolemy. If you look at the rabbinic story, you may be familiar with it. It's this idea that Ptolemy, who was king of the Ptolemaic Greek Empire, um, centered on Alexandria down in the south in Egypt, gathered together 72 rabbis and he shut them into separate rooms and he forced them to translate the Torah into Greek. And a great a miracle occurred that even though they were in separate rooms, they all came up with the same translation out of fear that certain aspects of the Torah when translated in the hands of the Greek would seem to be heretical. Now, that's the way we tell the story. But it's important to know the context of the translation if we want to understand why this would be a day of mourning. This was what's known as the Septuagint, ultimately, the Greek translation of the Torah. And it's a much more complex story than that. Septuagint wasn't born all at once, but ultimately became the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Torah and the rest eventually of the Bible. It was the first translation of a major Eastern work into Greek and therefore marks a uh, turning point in the advent of Hellenistic culture in this region. And the evidence outside of the way the Gemara tells the story seems to indicate that this was a translation made by Jews for Jews. It wasn't just a forced effort by Ptolemy to get the Torah and put it in his library in Alexandria. It was a central text of what came to be known as Hellenistic Judaism. And not only of Hellenistic Judaism, but ultimately Septuagint would go on to become the central translation of early Christianity. And that, in a certain way, already points us toward some understanding of why this was an act that the sages saw as worthy of mourning. Now, make no mistake, the question here is not translation itself. I mean, there have been major translations of the Torah into Aramaic, Arabic, Spanish, German, English. Anybody who's been listening to the Jewish story long enough should be able to do a little review quiz and identify what each of those were. And those are just the famous ones. At this point, as far as I can tell, the Torah is the most translated book in history, second perhaps to the Ikea catalog. But according to the sages, it goes deeper than that. Because in the Midrash, it says that God commanded Moshe to translate the Torah into 70 languages, meaning all the languages of the world, and write it on giant stones and place them at the fords of the Jordan River at the entrance to the land of Israel. So if there have been so many other translations, and in fact, if in the rabbinic mind, God commanded Moshe to translate the Torah into every language, why are we mourning its translation into Greek on the 8th of David or marking it now on the 10th? What would cause the sages to treat this as such a disaster that they would say in Masechet Sofrim, the day was as difficult for the people of Israel as the day the golden calf was made. The Torah could not be fully translated. Now, to me, I think the answer is clear. It's in incredibly important to remember that every translation is a bridge and a bridge runs two ways anyone who like myself is not a neighbor native hebrew speaker knows the importance of translation god bless rabbi art scroll and all his fellow travelers out there because it not only provides us access but it helps us to comprehend the torah in context of the cultural matrix which is our own remember language is more than just a technical means for communication it's a whole network of meaning and therefore serves as a lens for understanding whatever it is you're reading. Now the question is, that lies at the heart of this morning, are we able to maintain the perspective 
even while we're reading a translation, that the Hebrew is the source, both in language and in that cultural matrix which it represents. And not to mention, by the way, the depth of meaning that we derive from the levels of the Hebrew text, which lie beyond the simple syntax, levels which perforce are erased through translation. Because as they say in Masechet Sofrin there, we had, the Torah could not be fully translated. Does the translation draw us toward a deeper, unified text? Like Moshe's stones were meant to do at the gates of the land of Israel. People encountered the Torah in their own language at the gate in order to be drawn on into the living story of Am Yisrael with the temple at its center and the people living in their tribal inheritance. That's why he put it at the fords of the Jordan. So does that translation draw us deeper toward a unified text? Or does it drive us to assert that actually we know better than the original? That the cultural matrix and the language which it represents into which the Torah has been translated is actually supreme. And ultimately, that's what happened with both Hellenistic Judaism and the Christians who inherited the Septuagint. You know, if you've been listening to Jewish story, you've heard me say it before, that the Septuagint came to be seen in the hands of the early Christians as an inspired translation, one which better expressed God's will than the Hebrew original. That's an astounding insertion. In short, the question is, is translation an act that can reach Jews of every language and culture wherever they are, meeting with them where they are and drawing them together into one unified story? Or is it a golden calf ready to replace the God of Israel? Now, this is the first element that we need to remember today. Our task is always to craft a Torah of relevance, translate its values into our own but in a way which draws us together back to the source and doesn't divide us by pushing us apart. Step one. Step two, what occurred on the ninth was not recorded by our rabbis. It's a strange statement, isn't it? Meaning if, if something happened, so let us know what happened. If nothing happened, don't say anything. What does it mean it wasn't recorded? Well, without getting into it, the Mishnah Brura, great halakhic thinker of the early 20th century, helps us out because in his commentary on these fast days, he says in our slichot prayers, in the penitential prayers that many of us, I'm sure, said this morning, it says, on this day, Ezra the scribe died. Now, I could go on for hours about Ezra. In fact, you can go back and listen to the second ever episode of The Jewish Story. Frankly, I liked it much better than the first episode. But for the present purposes, just remember that Ezra was the spiritual leader of the Shivat Zion, the return to Zion, after the exile and the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. That's between the first and second temple. He really helped to found the culture of the second temple on its proper pedestal in order to be able to make it into the future. So like I said, I'll just make one point about Ezra. Ezra was known as, as a Sofer Mahir B'Torat Moshe. Right? He was the ready scribe in the Torah of Moshe, and he is a Kohen, he's a priest, and he was the sort of layer of the law. But it's often missed that Ezra was actually also the first historiographer of Am Yisrael, because the sages tell us that he wrote the book of Divrei of Chronicles. But perhaps historiographer is the wrong term there. It's really better said that he was the first conscious custodian of Jewish memory. Because even a casual comparison between the Book of Kings and, and Chronicles, between Malachim and Divrei Yamin, will show you that they diverge in many significant ways, ways in which the average historian probably would have backjacked when he was writing the later version. And that's not even to get into the internal difficulties that arise when you take a good look at Divrei Yamin. But that's completely irrelevant. Because Ezra wasn't attempting to give some Western objective pre presentation of what actually was. 
Because in my eyes, he was interested in the future, not the past. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask people, you can do this around your Shabbos table, is what's the last word of the Hebrew Bible? I'm usually astounded. So often someone out there who knows. But to the last line, which of course is the last line of, of Dibra Yemen, of Chronicles 2, written according to tradition by Ezra, says, right? Thus saith Cyrus, king of, of uh, Paras, of Persia, Right, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Yehuda. It's the one-line religious version of the Hatzrat Koresh, the declaration of Cyrus that sent not only Am Yisrael but all the nations that had been conquered by Babylon back to their lands. Fine. It's a worthwhile discussion. You can go listen to the episode on Ezra. But listen to the last bit. Who amongst you from all his nations that God is with him? Let him go up. The last word of the Bible is let him go up. It's a cliffhanger. It's a very strange way to end a story. Unless you realize, of course, this is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. Ezra's whole task in putting together Divrayamim was not to give us an orderly past. It was to give us a usable past. A past that allowed the people who were building the second temple to understand where they'd been, how they got there, and to inspire them to decide where they were headed. And that's what I see to be the tragedy marked by the ninth of Tebet that we're fasting for today. Ezra's death marks the loss of leadership that knows that though you can separate past, present, and future, what was is less important than what might be. And that in order to be a real leader, we have to learn to tell a story that inspires everyone to rise together in order to get to that precious future. And that's a loss that deserves to be mourned. We feel it more every day. The importance of leadership that can unite around a common vision of the future deserves to be reflected upon particularly in this, our third electoral season. Now, okay, last but certainly not least, since it is, after all, the 10th of Tavit today, right? It says, on the 10th of Tavit, the king of Babylon laid his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it. Or as it says in Yechezkel 24, lines 1 and 2, in the ninth year, on the 10th day of the 10th month, that's today, the word of the Lord came to me. And he says, Ben-Adam, tov, ktav lacha et shema yoma et, uh, sorry, he says, write down this date, this exact day, right? That on this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, we were talking about this last night, and my kids asked me, why is there a separate fast for the laying of the siege? I mean, after all, it's going to be more than two years until the walls are even broken, much less the temple destroyed. And my wife actually answered them in the name of Rabbi Yemim Mizrahi that that's exactly the point. The Tenth of Teva is the first in a cycle of three fasts that mark the process of destruction. The siege today, the 17th of Tammuz, marks the breaking of the wall, and the ninth of Av, of course, the destruction of the temple. But unlike the 17th of Tammuz and the ninth of Av, what happened today is not about the inevitable. On the contrary, you know, then when Yechezkel heard those words, O mortal, record this exact day, 
Jeremiah was still inside Jerusalem begging the people to change their ways, meaning there was still hope. You know, sometimes when I look around at my life or when we look around at our lives, personal, national, global, it's easy to feel surrounded. I mean, all my personal failings are still with me. There's that endless national struggle, the hundred-year war, the burning forests and plastic choking the oceans of our planet. It might look like there's no way out. And my experience is, when we feel that way, then the voice within us, which is calling for tshuva, which is telling us, actually, there is a way out. We can still change. Victory and peace are still possible. The world can be whole. Well, that voice sounds like a madman, not like a prophet. We lock madmen up just like they did to Jeremiah. We don't take their advice. But never forget that the root of hope is in recognizing that what is does not necessarily dictate what will be. It may indeed look like we're surrounded, but the story is far from over. Change is always possible because it's not just in the hands of humanity. It's also in the hands of God. We are co-authors of existence, not authors And what could be a more important message to reflect on than that? That the siege itself can be seen as the beginning of the end or the beginning of a new beginning. It can be the fact that we're surrounded and we lead to despair, or it can be the wake-up reminder that we need to listen to that voice within us as an individual, as a people, as a planet, and say now is the time to act before it's really too late. So these are the three pieces on which it's worth dwelling today. Like in, in order, like the Rambam told us, to arouse our hearts and open them up to the ways of the path of repentance and change. We need to strike a balance between translation and the unity of our Torah. We need to be as educators, as individuals, as fathers, brothers, sons, wives, sisters, husbands, lovers, whatever it is you are out there, all the above. We need to be able to meet people where they are in order to draw them together, not just to justify them stepping apart. We need to reflect on the power of leadership that can tell a story of the past, which unites us in the present and points us toward a shared future that we actually want to live. And we have to ground ourselves in the obligation to hope. Don't let despair cause you to miss the opportunity for change. When you feel surrounded, react with tshuva not despair. If we can hold these three things in our heart, then it's my firm belief that we'll merit to see the fulfillment of that prophecy of Zechariah, which is so connected to this day. Right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, the tenth of David, shall become occasions for joy and gladness. Happy festivals for the house of Yehuda, right? Vahemet, vashalom, elvu. But you must love honesty and peace. In order to transform this day from an act of historical memory and present mourning, we have to delve deeply into its messages in order to embody them in the present and let them carry us into a future which is filled with hope. So let it be a meaningful and successful fast for us all.